would please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 34. We'll be reading from verses 34 through 37. Excuse me, Acts 4. 34 through 37. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as there were possessors of land or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is, being interpreted, the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. It is good to see everyone this morning. We appreciate your presence, especially if you're visiting with us. We are delighted that uh, Ralph and Pat are back with us from Florida. We've been missing them. So we're thankful they had a safe journey back and are able to uh, be with us for uh, another period of time before they return back to Florida for a little while. And they're just back and forth all the time. Never seen a bunch of people run around so much in my life. I can remember growing up uh, listening to my father talk about things that happened when he was uh, a young boy. He would talk about living uh, with his grandparents for a time. My grandfather, I never knew him, he died when my father was seven years old. He died in the Wilder Mountain coal mines, electrocuted to death. And so my grandmother and her three boys lived with her parents for a period of time, and they grew up up on the mountain, and I can recall him telling me about the house where they lived. And we would go down and actually uh, see that home, or the what was left of it, when I was growing up. And he would always talk about the wooden floors that they had. They had poplar floors in their home. And he would tell me about how they went into the, into the woods up on that mountain, and they would cut those poplar trees, they would haul them out, they would uh, saw those logs up into boards that were 18 to 24 inches wide, and they would put those in that house, and that was uh, common, because a poplar board is beautiful, and once a year they would go down to the river and they would get a bunch of sand, and they would bring it up, and they would move everything out of that house as much as they could, and they'd pour that sand, and some water, and they would scrub those floors with sand and water until they were beautifully pretty and white. Similarly, during the colonial period of our own nation, the rich, uh, the wealthy ladies, they would have wide oak boards. And uh, once a week, they would uh, do what they called uh, dry mop and wet mop. And that's what my dad would tell me would happen once a week when uh, his grandparents, my great-grandparents, would dry mop and, or wet mop and then dry mop their poplar floors. And what they would do, they would take a, a wet mop and they would go through and they would mop and go along with the grain. And they would then come through with a dry mop and they would kind of buff that water off and it would make those oak floors nice and shiny. It would make those poplar floors that my dad would tell me about, nice and shiny. But every once in a while, particularly I was reading this about the, uh, the wealthy in the colonial times, they would have a servant who would 
mop that floor against the grain. Now what would happen then is uh, it would leave streaks. And that's where we got our term rubbing someone the wrong way. They would rub those floors with a wet mop, then they would rub them dry with a dry mop, and if you rubbed against the grain, you were rubbing them the wrong way. And so the wealthy ladies of the home would scold those uh, servants and make sure that you rub those floors the right way. And, and again, that's where we got our terminology, rubbing someone the wrong way. Now, the title of the sermon this morning is Rubbing People the Right Way. And uh, we want to talk for a few moments about that being our goal. Rubbing people the right way. And that ought to be our goal. And if it is our goal, there is a foolproof way that we are able to do that. It's guaranteed that we're able to do it. The reason for that is there is at least one thing in this life everybody has in common. We all need it. I need it. You need it. Everyone needs it. And that one thing, at least one thing, is encouragement. We all need encouragement. I believe it is the nature of people as time has gone on and we read the history of mankind throughout the Bible and and, uh, secular history, I think it tends to be the nature of people to tear down instead of build up. I think sometimes we just can't help that. And I think for every word of encouragement that we hear in this life, we very well may hear ten words of discouragement in this life. I don't know that necessarily people have that on their minds when when that happens, but I just think that we've gotten into a habit or the nature, a working habit, of doing that from time to time. And I think therein lies one of the greatest problems among people today. Sometimes we do not think before we engage our mouths to say something. I think that's why James warned. Notice with me, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we're going to read a passage beginning with verse 2. James said, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect or a complete man, able to also bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? We went through that here a few years back, didn't we? The mountains around us were on fire because a small kindle the fire burnt thousands of acres of our beautiful forest land. He goes on to say, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. And that's absolutely the truth, isn't it? But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude or the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? 
Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Y'all remember the old folk song, Home on the Range? I can remember my dad singing that when I was younger, and I'd go around singing it. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope uh, play, where seldom is heard a discouraging word, and the skies are not cloudy all day. Kind of makes you want to move to Montana, doesn't it? Well, even if we moved to Montana, I think probably from time to time we'd hear a discouraging word, and we'd still face discouragement. There was a tale told one time, there were two buffalo grazing on a plain, and an old cowboy rolled up on his horse, and he looked at those two buffalo, and he said, you're the ugliest critters on the earth. You stink. You got ugly beady eyes. Those humps on your back are grotesque, and if I had a powerful enough buffalo gun, I'd kill both of you right now. He turned and rode off, and one buffalo looked at the other and said, I believe we just heard a discouraging word. It's not supposed to happen, is it? This morning, I want us to look into the life of a man who was so encouraging to his brothers that he was called the son of encouragement. The early church nicknamed Joseph Barnabas, and that's what that means, son of encouragement. And it seems to me that he was the first minister of encouragement among the brethren. And we get our word for encouragement from the Greek word paraclete, which is used to describe the Holy Spirit, and it literally means one called alongside to help. Isn't that a comforting thought? That the Holy Spirit was called alongside the apostles to help them, lead them into all truth, therefore providing for us the written Word of God. So the Holy Spirit does guide us in this life through the written Word of God. And that's a comfort, isn't it? I think each of us this morning should dedicate ourselves to become encouragers, just like Barnabas. And in the process, I believe we might be able to learn how to rub people the right way. Barnabas was an encourager because he brought blessings to other people. That's our first point today. First, he did it by sharing his material blessings, didn't he? We read the the passage before us in Acts chapter 4, verse 37, tells us having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He didn't just say he wanted to help and encourage. He actually helped and encouraged. Of course, we always talk about the the, uh, uh, possessions in one's power. Barnabas didn't have to do that. He wasn't commanded to do that. In fact, we get over to Acts chapter 5 and we run into Ananias and Sapphira and and they did a similar thing. They sold a piece of property and they went and laid it at the apostles' feet and said, oh, we've given you every bit of it. But they kept back half of it. Now they weren't punished for keeping back half of it. They were punished for lying to God about keeping back half of it. In fact, Peter said, was it not in your own power to do with it what you wanted and yet you have lied to God? And so, of course, they were struck dead. In the first century, the reason that that came about was the church had its share of poor people, didn't it? It's just like today, we've got our share of poor people. And in fact, 
I grew up in that category, just like most of us. We've talked about this before. We were poor, but everybody was. I didn't even realize that we were poor until I got grown. And then I began to, to, to think back in amazement how my father was able to support three kids on what he made. At any rate, when uh, the people of the first century began to come to Christ, they began to obey the gospel, they were persecuted for that. In fact, a lot of them lost their jobs, they were shunned by society, so they were in great need. And in, the, in addition to that, this great revival was happening in Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, the The twelve stood up, they proclaimed the gospel of Christ, about 3,000 people obeyed the gospel that day, Acts chapter 2, and they decided they would remain in Jerusalem. Why? Well, they needed to learn more about God. They needed to learn more about the Christ. They needed to be in fellowship and enjoy the fellowship of those of like precious faith. And Peter would go on to talk about that in 2 Peter 1 verse 1. And so they needed to be there, but there was a problem. They didn't anticipate that. They went up to observe the Pentecost, the Passover, and instead of observing the Passover, they heard what's recorded for us, the first gospel sermon. They obeyed the gospel, and so needing to stay there, they didn't have the funds to do it. So then we learned about a man named Joseph called Barnabas. And so he sold what he had, being an encourager, that valuable piece of land, and he gave it so people could stay and learn. He encouraged them to learn more about what it meant to be a Christian. And so they enjoyed the fellowship of other believers, and they were able to live on the kindness of people like Barnabas. But that wasn't the greatest example of encouragement people like Barnabas offered. They they offered material things, but there are other things that mark a great encourager. And we see that in Barnabas. What happens is, often the intangible things are what is needed, isn't it? What an encourager does is is he looks at a situation or she looks at a situation and she sees what needs to be done and they do what is necessary to make sure that happens. That doesn't always include money, does it? And do you know what? More often than not, that need is not financial. It's something else. One does not have to have a piece of property like Barnabas to be an encourager. One doesn't have to have a large sum of money they can give to be an encourager. But we all have what most people need. Think about it this way. The sick people don't need money. They need a word of concern, don't they? Lonely people don't need money. They need a few minutes of time. Hurting people do not need money. They need a touch on the shoulder. Discouraged people do not need money. They need a sentence of hope. That's what they need. Encouragers offer those things. Mark Twain once made a statement and he wrote, he said, I can live two months on one good compliment. Well, that's about the truth, isn't it? You see, an encourager is someone who brings blessings to other people may be material but the mark of a great encourager is often in the intangible and it comes in various forms when Antioch began to hear the gospel and they began to 
see a growth of people obeying the gospel, the, the, the elders in Jerusalem, they heard about that. And who did they send to Antioch to kind of look at things and check things out? They sent Barnabas. And because Barnabas went and he was such a great encourager, much people was added unto the Lord, Acts eleven twenty four. Isn't that amazing? That's what an encourager does. Encourages people to be faithful. Encourages people to obey the gospel if they've never obeyed the gospel, but always encourages people to hang in there. That's the greatest kind of encouragement. An encourager brings blessings to people but they also break down barriers for others. That's our second point. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. Acts 9, 26 and 27. The Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus at the time, had met the Lord on the way to Damascus, and he told him to go into the city, and there to be told you what you must do to be saved. And so he goes into the city, and for three days and three nights, he fasted, he cried, he prayed. He wanted to be forgiven of his sins. We see belief in that. We see his repentance. We see his confession that Jesus was Lord because he met him and spoke to him on the way to Damascus. And then we meet a man by the name of Ananias, a preacher. So Ananias goes in and he teaches saw the gospel in Acts chapter 22, verse 16. He says, Arise and be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And so that's what Saul did. Saul became a New Testament Christian, in other words. And so after having become a New Testament Christian, and we're back in Acts chapter 9, or, or three places in Acts where that's recorded, 9, 22, and 27, or 26. And so having obeyed the gospel, Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 26, And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed, keep an eye on that word, to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. See, Paul after having been converted, immediately went to work. Well, that's a lesson in itself, isn't it? Obeying the gospel and now immediately going and trying to teach someone what you know at that point. You may not know all the all there is to know about the book of Romans or the book of Revelation, but we definitely know how to become a Christian at that point, don't we? And so Paul went out. Of course, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he had the answers, but he went out working. But there was a barrier that was preventing him from being accepted, and that barrier was the people were afraid. They were afraid. They had put up this barrier. This barrier. He couldn't get through it. Now, I understand. I get it. Saul was probably the most feared and hated man in the world to them at that time. He sought them out. He murdered them. He put them in jail. He did everything he could to try and destroy the church. Now, how many people do you think, oh, that's just a trick? That's a pretty good trick, but it's a trick. He's trying to get us to open up to him and say, yeah, come on in, and now he's got us all. But what Barnabas do? Let's listen again to what Luke said. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. 
They weren't interested. But Barnabas took him. Now the sense of the passage is Barnabas took Saul under his wing. The Greek word assayed carries with it the idea of trying time and time again to enter into fellowship with the brethren. They weren't having it. They were afraid. There was a barrier there. A barrier that he could not penetrate. A barrier that was preventing him from being what all he could be at that time. Now what would have happened if Barnabas had not taken Saul under his wing, encouraged him, and stood up for him to the brethren. Well, God's plan would have still worked out. But it would have definitely worked out in a different way. God's not going to be thwarted. Now, because of that, because of what Barnabas did, the son of encouragement, they came to accept Saul. They brought him in. You notice one of the things that Barnabas did not do? Barnabas, when he brought Saul to Jerusalem, he didn't bring up the past, did he? He didn't allude to his previous mistakes. He didn't say, Now look, brethren, I know he was a murderer. I know he was a blasphemer. I know he tried his best to destroy the church. I know he put a lot of y'all in jail. But he repented. Now how would that have gone over? He didn't do that. Because Saul had repented. God had accepted him. And so what was Barnabas' duty as a Christian? To encourage Saul. To encourage the brethren to work with Saul. So that the gospel could go first. Encouragers do not look to the past. They look to the future. Barnabas didn't look at what Paul had done. He looked at what Paul could do. That's what encouragers do. I think it is important to build up and to encourage each other. I think, I, I think that's what the writer of Hebrews was talking about. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 23. The writer says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. I think it's kind of like that man that was feeling a little bit down and he went to his wife and he said, Honey, you know, I feel old. I feel flabby. I feel wrinkled. And I feel useless and stupid. And she smiled at him and she said, Don't be silly. You're not a bit old. We need encouragement, don't we? We need encouragement from time to time. And so when we get, begin to feel old and flabby, wrinkled, useless and flabby, maybe we need someone to say, well, you're not that old. You know, We need encouragement. We need to encourage each other. That's vital to the health of the Lord's church. Encouragement. We need to bring blessings of encouragement. We don't need to bring barriers. We don't need to separate ourselves for whatever reason. Barnabas did that because he was an encourager. He brought blessings. He tore down barriers. And he also built bridges. That's our third and final point. Turn to Acts chapter 15 with me. We're going to notice in Acts chapter 15 
beginning in verse 36, that there was a great disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, the encourager. And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord, and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia, and went not with them to work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed into Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. Now what had happened there? Well, Mark had gone on a mission effort with Paul and Barnabas, and for some reason, he went back home. He didn't continue the work. He got involved in the work, and over the course of fulfilling that, at some point, he went back to the house. Well, I don't know. We're not told. Was he homesick? I don't know if he was homesick. I hear a lot of people say that. It's not revealed to us, but he did return home. But whatever the reason was his returning home, Paul didn't see it as a legitimate reason. And it probably wasn't. Probably wasn't a legitimate reason at that time. But Barnabas, being an encourager, wanted to give Mark another chance. He made a mistake earlier, no doubt. I believe Paul was probably correct in believing it was a mistake. But I don't think Paul was correct in saying, let's don't bring him. So Barnabas, wanting to encourage that man, said, yeah, he's going to go with us. And the disagreement was so sharp that Barnabas, the encourager, said, okay, you go your way, I'll go my way. But we're going to do the work of the Lord either way. Now, I find it a little bit ironic. Barnabas, who stuck up for Paul, Saul, but Saul wasn't willing to stick up for Mark. Now, we don't know the circumstances. But I know they were all good men. But that's what encouragers do. They see the potential in someone, not an inconvenience. A lot of the times, we just simply don't want to be inconvenienced when someone else has a huge burden on their hands, right? Mark needed that encouragement. And at that time, Saul didn't want to give it to him. Or Paul. But Barnabas did. And so, he was determined encourage Mark even though the two had had a disagreement he went on and he encouraged him he wanted to to encourage Mark to go out spread the gospel become the person that God knew he could become and so instead of two great missionaries we end up with four great missionaries doing twice the work now going in different directions you know later I think that Paul learned a lesson from that you recall toward the end of his life while he was in prison, 2 Timothy 4, beginning with verse 9, Paul wrote to Timothy, saying, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatian. Only Luke is with me. Here it is. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable unto me. For the ministry. Even the great man Paul was able to learn something from the son of encouragement. And that should be a lesson to all of us. 
Instead of making discouraging comments, let's encourage one another. Let's consider our words before we speak. And let's encourage those around us. A lot of that has to do with selflessness instead of selfishness, doesn't it? Do we consider the needs of those around us or our own inconveniences? You know, a lot of people have what is known as the Charlie Brown complex. Poor Charlie Brown. He never could do anything right, could he? And you know, if, if you read the Peanuts comic strip enough, you come to understand one of the prime reasons that poor little Charlie Brown couldn't do anything was because of Lucy. Lucy made sure he couldn't do anything, and when he wasn't able to do it, she reminded him that he couldn't do anything. Years ago, a movie called Stand and Deliver was produced. I don't know if anyone's ever seen it. I've never seen the movie. I just read about it. It was a story of a man by the name of Jamie Escalante. He was a successful high school teacher in a very rough city. And in his class, he had two boys named Johnny. One Johnny was brilliant. He was a pleasure. He was the best student. And then he had the other Johnny. The other Johnny was a rebel. He rebelled against authority. He didn't want to learn. He wasted all of his talent, and he just wasn't going to learn. Well, the first PTA parent-teacher meeting rolled around, and this lady came up to Mr. Escalante and said, Well, how's Johnny doing in class? He said, Oh, Johnny's doing great. I am so glad to have him in my class. He is a joy to be around. Thank you so much for allowing him to be in my class. Well, the next day, everybody showed up for class, and the rebellious Johnny came up to the teacher and said, Mr. Escalante, my mother told me what you said about me last night. He said, I just want you to know I've never had a teacher who wanted me or even liked me, but after what you said, I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to be the best student you've ever seen. And you know what? He became a model student. And all along, Mr. Escalante was talking to the wrong Johnny's mother. But a timely compliment, a word of encouragement can go a long way. Let's encourage one another. Let's love each other. And let's help each other get to heaven. We need to consider that, don't we? And why is that possible? Because we have the best example of encouragement. Now we've been talking about Barnabas today for a few moments. But we have the example of Christ. He's the greatest encourager the world has ever known. He gave his life so we might live. We understand how that happens. We can read about it in the Bible. Don't ever take my word for it. We have to listen to the gospel, Romans 10, 17. We have to believe it, John 8, 24. We have to allow that faith to grow in our hearts and lead us to godly sorrow, which leads one to repentance, and repentance is absolutely necessary, Acts 2, 38. We confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Paul said that leads us unto salvation, Romans 10, 10. We make that confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, just like the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts 8, verse 37. And like that example, we follow that with being immersed in water so our sins can be washed away. Just like what we talked about Ananias telling a praying, fasting Saul. Prayer didn't get him into heaven. He'd been praying for three days. He was still lost. But obeying the gospel completely, that final step into salvation, is what saved him. And then, of course, living a faithful life. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that today. We'd love to talk with you about it. If you have, you've become unfaithful. Come back to God through prayer and repentance.
Sometimes we have to make a public confession, whatever the case is. If you need to answer this Lord's invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.